Coming up on Philosophy Talk, non-human rights. The rights of non-human animals. What do the Ganges, Himalayan glaciers, U.S. corporations, and you and I all have in common? We're all recognized as persons under the law. If a person is not just a human being, then what exactly are they? What kind of lives must non-human animals have to count as persons? Honey, I'm seven non-fox years old now. My father died at seven and a half. I don't want to live in a hole anymore. And I'm going to do something about it. If we grant primates and elephants and orcas personhood, then where does it stop? Sometimes a pony, sometimes a pony, sometimes a pony gets depressed. Look, worms feel pain, but we're not going to grant them non-human rights, are we? Our guest is Stephen Wise, author of Rattling the Cage, Toward Legal Rights for Animals. Non-human rights. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Should some non-human animals be legally regarded as persons? And should those animals be allowed to sue in court to protect their legal rights? This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from Semex Auditorium on the Stanford campus. Our thinking originates a stone's throw away from here uh, at Philosopher's Corner on the main quad. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy. Welcome everyone to Philosophy Talk. Now, most philosophers believe that we humans have rights because, well, we're persons. Now, if it turns out that some non-human animals are persons too, then it just follows, as night does day, that they should have rights, non-human rights. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean by person here? For most people, person means human being, so it's like contradictory. Well, Descartes, for example, thought that to be a person meant to have an immaterial soul, and he thought that the soul is the seat of all thought and consciousness, so a person is an insouled human being. Yeah, Descartes thought a lot of things, in particular, he thought that non-human animals lacked these souls and thus were just fleshy automata with no thought or consciousness. Well, if you ask me, I think Descartes overestimated humans and <laughs> underestimated animals, frankly, because I don't think there is a soul. I, I think you're better off with John Locke. John Locke said that any creature with a conception of itself counts as a person whether it's a parrot or whatever. According to him, a person is a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection, so it considers itself as itself. Well, I, I think that Locke's got it much better. And you know, one thing is, you don't need a soul to do that. Any creature with a half-decent-sized brain can consider itself as itself, as Locke puts it. Okay, decent-sized brains, but big deal. I mean, size of brains, is there any other reason to believe? that some animals consider themselves as themselves? Yeah, yeah, well, just take the simple thing of pain. Obviously, animals feel pain. Obviously, they hurt. Well, that's not enough. I mean, if that's all it takes to be a, a person, I, mean, I, I would think worms would be people. You stick a hook at them, they ride around, they sure look like they're feeling pain. You got to give them rights? Well, 
maybe. <laughs> but I'm actually thinking about more than just writhing around. I, I'm thinking about animals that are capable of much more than, you know, simple aversive reactions. I, I'm, I'm thinking about the capacity, like, to understand and then to represent the infliction of pain, for example, as an infliction of harm upon the self. It's me you're hurting. Okay, but why? Why is that so important? Well, because just think about it. Think about the way humans respond to pain. We complain. I mean, we may threaten not just to hurt the perpetrator of the pain, hurt him back, but like to take him to court and sue him. Now, why do we do that? What's behind that? That's because we understand and represent the willful infliction of pain by the other, you're inflicting pain on me, as a violation of the self. And that, that's what makes us persons. Have you got any evidence that animals can do that sort of thing? Has, has any animal ever lodged a complaint with you against another animal for violation of itself? No. Take Coco the gorilla. Maybe she could lodge a complaint using American Sign Language. I mean, she was taught something like a thousand different signs, John. And there were African gray parrots. They were amazing. They can speak in whole sentences. So you think that what makes gorillas say and African gray parrots, persons, unlike, say, worms, is the capacity for language. Now, I think Locke might agree with you oh, there. He thought very highly of talking parrots. Actually. I know he did, and I, I think that's part of it. I don't think that's the whole thing. I think there's, there's more than that going on. I mean, think about elephants. They have these really strong social bonds, complex relationships with one another. They grieve. They actually grieve when their family members die. And they even seem to have mourning rituals. So look, they can clearly do this thing that distinguishes persons from non-persons. They can distinguish self from other. And they can experience the loss of the other as the loss of something valuable to the self. Things matter to them. So yeah, they're persons. All right, so suppose I grant you that at least some non-human animals have some of the hallmarks of genuine personhood. What follows well, from that? Th then the floodgates open, John. Then it follows that we ought to start treating these animals like the persons they are and not just as things. We ought to recognize that they also have the right to life, liberty, security of person. I mean, the right to be free from fear, oppression, and, and slavery. The right not to suffer cruel or degrading treatment. I mean, the floodgates open. Well, come on, Ken. It took a civil war to get started on recognizing the rights of African-Americans, and, and the process is incomplete. What do you think it's going to take to get the rights of chimps and orcas and parrots recognized? Well, look, I, I admit, it's going to be a long slog. But as Confucius says, even the longest journey begins with a single step. You're so learned. <laughs> <laughs> a good place to begin our journey towards deeper understanding is with our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, who takes a scientific look at the personhood of non-human animals. She files this report. Primatologist Franz de Waal tells a lot of adorable stories about the chimps he studies behaving altruistically. At the field station, for example, we have a very old female. Her name is Penny, who can barely walk, who has arthritis. When the other young females see her get up to go to the water spigot, they run ahead. And they, they take a drink for her and they, they return to her and spit it in her mouth so that she doesn't need to walk that whole distance. Why does this kind of altruism seem a lot more heroic than, for example, the way an ant sacrifices itself for the colony? 
Is it because ants seem to be merely obeying genetic reflexes, but the monkey seems to be making a choice? What if I could teach this monkey the difference between right and wrong? DeWall suggests that actually, social animals can't help but be empathetic. It's a primal instinct, and it doesn't involve a lot of choice. It turns out, DeWall found, that even having a sense of fairness might be innate too. You can watch videos of his experiments. In one, you see an adorable little chimp get himself a piece of cucumber by exchanging it for a rock. Then he watches his chimp friend do the same, only in return receive a grape. The first chimp instantly knows he's been ripped off, rages against the bars of his cage with his anguished face to the sky as if petitioning the gods for mercy, and then proceeds to stage a hunger protest against the injustice by dutifully handing over rocks just so he can take his cucumber pieces and throw them at the researchers. But DeWall goes on to say, eventually both chimps get upset by the unfairness, not just the one that's been shortchanged. We have found that sometimes the one who gets the grape tries to equalize the things by refusing the grape till the partner also gets one. Wow. And we have now reached with chimpanzees the point that uh, their sense of fairness is much more evolved than in these monkeys and is very similar to the human one. But monkeys don't do things because they think they ought to. They do things because of emotions. DeWall says behaviors that seem to be enlightened or chosen or taught to us by our parents, like acts of empathy or ones that promote fairness within a group, they may just be reflexive because emotions, by definition, are not chosen. Your mind is representing what has changed in your organism while you are in the emotion. Neuroscientist Antonio Damasio describes an emotion as a non-conscious set of actions that play out in an organism. So let's take the emotion fear. Imagine you're driving on the highway and someone swerves in front of you. In a single instant, you have your heart rate that goes up and you have the blood pressure that goes up and you have your hypothalamus spritzing cortisol. And automatically you swerve away. This is your prepackaged biology controlling you. None of it is chosen. We have this program in us, and we have it not just for fear, but we have it for sadness, anger, joy. Uh, we have it also for a variety of emotions that we call social emotions. For example, embarrassment, shame, contempt, compassion, admiration, pride, um, guilt. All of these exist as prepackaged arrangements in the biology of your brain. Scientists keep finding more and more species whose behavior, like ours, is motivated and regulated by emotions, even ones that can't physically emote, like snails. But we can't read snails. There are plenty of animals that have the capacity to feel emotions that we don't feel for. Vermin and rodents and birds and crayfish. We humans mostly only intervene to protect the species that we empathize with. In that light, our behavior sounds kind of like the chimp in Franz Duval's lab and his solidarity protest tantrum over the great grape injustice. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Beal. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.